Amen. Well, please open your Bible to John chapter 20. The Gospel of John chapter 20. We're going to jump right back into the narrative we began last week. I'm going to start in verse 15. Really focusing in on the last two verses, verse 17 and 18. Hear the word of the Lord. John chapter 20, beginning in verse 15. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Let's pray one more time. Father, as we just sang a few moments ago, Lord, not unto us, Lord, but unto You. All the glory, all the honor, all the praise be unto Your name. And so help us now as we preach and hear the preaching, Lord, I pray that all glory would be Yours. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to do something a little unconventional uh, this morning in that we're going to begin a sermon right in the middle of a narrative. And so last week, Pastor John Mark began uh, back in verse 11, talking about Mary going to the tomb, seeking Jesus and seeking his body. And as we what we ultimately saw was that Christ sought her and revealed himself to her. And so this morning, I want to focus on these last two verses here in this first resurrection narrative in the Gospel of John and and draw out and highlight what I've called post-resurrection realities. What I hope that we will see this morning is that after and as a result of the life and the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there are some massively significant changes that take place, and those changes affect all of us living on the other side of the cross. And they affect Christians everywhere. After God raised Christ from the dead, some things were never to be the same. Amen? We want to draw some of that out. While we can't discuss all of these in detail this morning, it's worth noting a few significant uh, changes that did take place as a result of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. We could preach, obviously, uh, hundreds of hours of sermons on this, but I want to just point out a few things. First of all, we could talk about the changes that took place at a cosmic level, a, a universal cosmic level. In a very significant sense, when Jesus was raised from the dead, Satan was cast out of this world. And Jesus rightly took back the authority that Adam had forfeited to Satan in the garden. And now all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to Jesus. We could talk about how in the resurrection, Satan was bound for a thousand years or for a really long time so that now the gospel can go forth into all the nations 
And Satan can no longer deceive the nations from hearing and coming into the church. Or we could get very, very practical with this. And we could think about our own sin and how Jesus in His death and resurrection triumphed over our sin and gives us power over our sin so that we no longer are enslaved to it, but can reign above it through Him. We could talk about how we no longer have to fear death. Think about that. We no longer have to fear death because Jesus defeated death in His resurrection. So whether we're talking at a cosmic level or at a very personal and practical level, things changed drastically after Christ was raised from the dead. And I want to linger on these last two verses because they reveal two extremely significant changes in how people relate to Jesus Christ after the resurrection that is different to how they related to Him before His resurrection. And I want to highlight these two post-resurrection realities and build upon them. So number one, post-resurrection, Christ's presence is no longer merely physical. It's no longer merely physical. Look at verse 17. Jesus said to her, to Mary, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. So think about this. Here's Mary who has come out on the first day of the week. It's still a little bit dark outside. And the last thing she saw was her Lord being crucified, nailed to a cross, and killed. And so she's emotionally, she's all over the place. Mentally, she's blurry. It's dark outside. And so she thinks Jesus is the gardener. And she begins to talk to him and all of a sudden Jesus reveals himself to her by calling her by name. And if you remember from last week and from John 10, Jesus calls his sheep by their name and they hear his voice and they respond to him. And what does she do? Well, it seems from Jesus' response that she bows down and grabs onto him and latches onto him. And in Matthew's account of this scene, it says that when Jesus met them, He said, greetings. And they came up and took hold of His feet and worshipped Him. And so if we're supposed to reconcile those two passages, it seems that Mary, who has been weeping for sorrow, who last saw her Lord being mistreated and nailed to a cross, comes to see Him, she sees Him alive, and she grabs onto His feet and won't let go. And before we go any further, I don't want to just rush by this before putting this before us to consider. I mean, think about Mary's love for Christ. Her love for her Lord. He is the great object of her affection. I mean, how I long to love Christ. How I long to have affection for Jesus Christ the way that Mary does here in this Narrative, brothers and sisters, we struggle so much. We struggle with sin. We, we fear. We become anxious. We become apathetic. We have all these deviances. We get all bent out of shape. And oh, how quickly we become professional Christians. And it is subtle how easily we leave our first love. You know, one morning this week in my devotions, I read Matthew 23, where Jesus pronounces the woes on the Pharisees and the scribes. 
And he says this in verse 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. And I found myself this week just thinking, Lord, have I become a professional Christian? Have I gotten so good at being a Christian outwardly, but yet my affections for you have waned? This is possible. And I will ask you, have you gotten so comfortable in your walk with Jesus Christ that your affections for Him have waned and lessened and lightened? Mature Christians who have learned not to be led by emotions and feelings, but by truth. It's a good thing. We need to ask ourselves this every now and then. When is the last time that you latched on to Jesus Christ and would not let Him go? Mary demonstrates here her love for her Lord and it seems that she grabs onto His feet as if to say, they took you away from Me once and now I have you again and I'm not letting you go. And as much as that displays her love, her response is misguided. Jesus says to her, do not cling to Me. And that verse is not super easy to translate. Some translations say, stop clinging to Me. As if Mary was clinging to Him and Jesus is saying, stop. This is not what I want you to do. Others, like the ESV, render it as the imperative, do not cling to Me, knowing that her desire would be immediately to grab onto Him. Other translations like the KJV just simply say, do not touch me or touch me not. Either way, the focus is on Jesus' physical presence, His physical body. And so you can imagine Mary who is overwhelmed with joy, who saw her Lord crucified and died and now is seeing Him again. The first thing she's going to want to do is to grab Him and touch Him and hold Him. And we're going to see later next week that Thomas wants to touch Jesus in order to believe. But Jesus says, Do not cling to Me, for I have not yet ascended to My Father. So there's a few different views on what Jesus means here. Some people think it means Jesus is saying, Do not cling to Me now, because I'm not at My final destination yet. I still need to ascend to the Father. This isn't where I'm going to be forever. Don't cling to Me. Others think that Jesus is saying to Mary, like, slow down a little bit. I haven't yet ascended. I'm still here. Go tell my brothers. I'm going to appear to them also. And I think there's validity to both of those views. Uh, But I think the book of John, the Gospel of John, sheds light on what Jesus is saying here. If you remember the Good Friday service a few weeks ago, uh, there was this overwhelming emphasis on the actuality of Christ's death and burial. And if you remember, John takes great pains to emphasize that Jesus really died. He really was crucified. He really was buried. And he talks about how the Romans took a spear and pierced the side of Christ and that John saw with his own eye blood and water flowing from the body of Christ. There's a great emphasis on Jesus' physical body. And all that goes That goes way back to John chapter 1, verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Yet now, 
Post-resurrection, Jesus' presence is no longer merely confined or limited to a physical, natural body. This is quite interesting to think about because there clearly is a physical reality to Christ's resurrected, resurrected body. I mean, people can see Him. They talk to Him. They touch Him. Uh, he eats fish that people caught. And so there is a physical Aspect, yet at the same time, his body transcends spatial limitations. For example, in verse 19, the section we'll cover next week, it says that the doors were locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, but it says, but Jesus came and stood among them. And then eight days later, after that, in verse 26, it says, although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. And then in Luke 24, when Jesus appears to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, at first Jesus is just talking with them and walking with them and they think that He's just a regular person. Yet, when He goes into the house with them and breaks bread and blesses it and gives it to them, it says in verse 31 that their eyes were opened and they recognized Him and He vanished from their sight. So before the resurrection, Christ has a human body like ours. And He is limited like we are in terms of space. There are a few exceptions. There's that time that Jesus walked on water. But by and large, He is limited to being in one place at one time. He has a body like we have, but now post-resurrection, those limitations are thrown off. And locked doors cannot keep Jesus away from the disciples. There's a change that has happened. And for whatever it's worth, you know, we hear a lot of speculation about the glorified state. Will there be animals? Will we recognize each other? You know, will we work? Will we eat? And all of this. The the Bible obviously doesn't answer all of these questions. It doesn't give us a ton of details and specifics about what the resurrected state and the glorified state will, will be like. But it seems to me that if we're going to have a good theology of the resurrected state, the bulk of the material needs to come from these post-resurrection narratives where Jesus appears to His disciples before His ascension. And I say that because of 1 John 3, 2, where He says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. So whatever that's going to be like, what we do know is that we will be like Him. And we will see Him the way He is. And I'm convinced, brothers and sisters, that one of the biggest weaknesses of the American church today is that we so undervalue the second coming of Jesus Christ and the glorified state. I mean, don't get me wrong, we love to argue over eschatology. We, we, we do that well. But I'm talking about encouraging our hearts the way that the New Te- Testament authors draw upon the second coming of Christ and using those passages to, to spur us on. We don't do that as much. Perhaps that's a byproduct of living in a time with great medical advancement. Perhaps it's a byproduct of living in a time and a location where by and large our Christian expression does not threaten our lives. But make no mistake about it, 
the church throughout history and the church in many places of the world today, they have used these passages about the second coming of Christ and the eternal state of glory to encourage their hearts because their circumstances have been so abysmal. And we should look and draw upon these texts as well. I've gone through some significant trials in my life, but I have suffered very little in my body. Very little. I could count on my hands how many times I've been to the doctor. And some of you may roll your eyes at what I'm about to say, but I think it helps communicate the point. I just turned 31 years old. And for the first time, I feel like that I can feel in my body a slow decay. Right? I can't just jump out onto a court or onto a field and just jump in after not having done anything in eight or nine months and just jump back into where I used to be. Right? My, my, I'm slower, I'm weaker, my body hurts, my back hurts. I feel my body weakening and I don't like it. And here's the reality. Some of you in this room have gone through extremely difficult trials in your bodies. And some of you ongoingly right now are experiencing very difficult challenges in your body. And some of you, you don't quite know if the doctors and medicine will come up with the right answers to help you and give you a solution. But here's the hope that is laid up for us. No matter how difficult our bodily challenges are, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 42-44, what is sown is perishable, is raised imperishable. What is sown in dishonor is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Just as we have seen and borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Do you long for His appearing? Do you long for His second coming? Do you long for your glorified body in a resurrected creation? Now, what I want us also to see is that this change in the way that we relate to the presence of Jesus is closely tied to His ascension. He goes on to say in verse 17, Do not cling to Me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. I want to talk about the ascension for a few moments because although the Gospel of John does not actually record the ascension at the end, the Gospel, in an, uh, the gospel does theologically draw upon the concept of the ascension a lot. And it plays a major role in the Gospel of John, specifically related to the sending of the Holy Spirit and its ongoing presence and ministry with Christians. And so now, it's been years since we were in the since we were in John chapter 14, uh, three or four years, I believe. Uh, so the content that we covered in John 14 may seem a little blurry today. But on a historical timeline, the discourse that Jesus taught his disciples in John chapter 14 is just about three years prior to what we see in chapter 20. And so it's not far removed historically. And Jesus said to them back in chapter 14, verse 12, Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever believes in Me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will He do, because I am going to the Father. 
So because Jesus is going to the Father in the ascension, His disciples will do greater works than He has done. Now what does that mean? That we will do individual greater works than Jesus? No. But ten days after Jesus goes to the Father in the ascension, what does He do? He pours out the gift of the Holy Spirit on the church. And He goes on to say in verse 16, And I will ask the Father... So after He ascends, I will ask the Father and He will give you another Helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him for He dwells with you and will be in you. So because Jesus ascends to the Father and is seated at the right hand of the Father, He and the Father send the gift of the Spirit onto the church to fill them. And so post-resurrection, Jesus' presence is no longer confined to physical and spatial limitations. And after Christ's ascension, His presence will be in all Christians all the time. So Jesus will no longer be in one place, talking to one person, healing one man at a pool, but His Spirit will be in all believers, wherever He is named in all the earth. And he goes on to say, And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest manifest myself to him. So, So how does this work for Christians after the apostles? Should you expect to have visions of the resurrected Christ? Is he going to come into your room if you love him? No, he reveals himself to us. He manifests himself to us via the Holy Spirit. Through the Spirit and His illuminating work in us. And Jesus says that this is better than if He were to stay. John 16, 5-7 But now I am going to Him who sent Me, that's the ascension, and none of you asks Me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. This is Jesus Christ. I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away that I ascend. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. And so one of the primary post-resurrection blessings for Christians is that because Christ has ascended to the Father and taken His rightful place at His right hand, He has sent the Spirit to, to indwell Christians individually and to dwell in the church corporately. It's His promise. It is a good gift. So there is a shift in how we relate to the presence of Jesus Christ post-resurrection and post-ascension. The, resurrection, the resurrected Christ is right now reigning in heaven. And He will come again. Yet via the Holy Spirit, His presence is with us. And it's with the church. Everywhere we go. Always. I mean, we read it. We read it every morning. I am with you always to the end of the age. And the Spirit is carrying on the ministry of Jesus Christ through the church on the earth. The Father revealed Himself to the world in the person of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit reveals Jesus Christ to believers in His indwelling. 
Or we could say it another way. We could say that Jesus Christ in His incarnation reveals the Father to the world. But the Holy Spirit in His indwelling reveals Jesus Christ to the elect. Initially and ongoingly, how do you commune with Christ when you open His Word or when you're seeking Him in prayer? It's the Holy Spirit. How do you commune with Christ when you come to the table and receive these elements by faith? Or how is Jesus with us when we gather together to practice church discipline? It's the Holy Spirit. How does Jesus sanctify the church as we sit under the preached Word? Or how does Jesus dwell with believers and and go with believers as they take the Gospel to foreign lands and risk their lives? It's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We relate to Christ through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And this is the case because Christ has accomplished His work has been raised from the dead, and has ascended to the Father. I mean, what a gift, brothers and sisters. What a heritage that we have as children of God. Do we we avail ourselves of this? Or are we going to let some Christians and some circles of church who abuse these things keep us from our inheritance? I don't want to let that be me. I don't want to just be some enlightened, rationalized Christian who doesn't draw near to the Spirit, who doesn't avail himself of the power of the Spirit because some other people are doing some really strange things that are unbiblical and harmful. Do you commune with the Holy Spirit? And I'm not talking about some unhitched, New Age occultism where we empty our mind and just meditate on whatever. I'm not talking about some unbiblical spiritual experience. I'm talking about daily abiding in the Word of Christ. Seeking to know Him. Seeking to obey Him. And as you do, you draw near to the Spirit and you humbly depend upon Him, knowing that you can do nothing apart from Him. Drawing near to the Spirit's presence all throughout the day and every morning for His help, for His grace. Seeking Him, knowing Him, walking with Him. And I am convinced that if there is one truth that if we could grasp, it would change our lives and change our churches. And Lord willing, change our nation and our world. It's the truth that Jesus Christ is with us and is with our churches via the presence of the Holy Spirit. Number two, not only is there a change in how we relate to the presence of Christ post-resurrection, but there is a change in how we relate to God post-resurrection. Again, verse 17, the second part. He says, but go to my brothers. It's interesting. Go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father. To my God and your God. So in John 15, 15, Jesus said to His disciples, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Yet here, 
post-resurrection, for the first time in the Gospel of John, Jesus calls His disciples, not servants, not friends, brothers. Brothers. And He says to Mary, tell my brothers, I'm ascending to my Father and their Father. My God and their God. Tell them that. Tell them that when you talk to them. And I don't know how Mary recollected this conversation to the disciples. It just says that she announced to them what He said to her. But you can imagine, even with all the limitations that the disciples had, and all the doubt, and all the unbelief, how encouraging this would have been. Especially for Peter. They just betrayed their Lord. They're all locked up in a room, and she comes to them, and He said, I... She says, I've seen the Lord. And he said, I'm going to the Father, but not only his Father, he said, your Father. Not only is he going to his God, he said he's going to your God. Would have been amazing. And he prayed this, remember, in John 17. When he prays to the Father, he said, all mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. And he goes on to pray, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. That was accomplished post-resurrection. And through what Christ has accomplished, the Father has answered that prayer because all He did in His life, in His death, His resurrection, the disciples are no longer enemies of God. They're no longer merely followers of Jesus. They're no longer merely disciples of Jesus. They are brothers of Jesus. And God is no longer their enemy. God is their Father. And in just a few days, Jesus will ascend into heaven and take His rightful seat at the right hand of the Father. And He will send the gift of the Father, the Holy Spirit, to them. And when that happens, they will be fully in Him. And He will be fully in them. And they will be fully in the Father. This is what we call the doctrine of adoption. The doctrine of adoption that through faith in Jesus Christ, when we receive the righteousness of Christ, not only does God see us legally as righteous, He does, and that's, that's amazing, but He sees us as His own sons because He sees the righteousness of His only begotten Son. And we are brought into the family of God and our relationship to God goes from being an enemy of Him under His wrath, under His judgment, to being His child and He being our Father. I want to read from the Second London Baptist on adoption. It says, God has granted that all those who are justified would receive the grace of, grace of adoption in and for the sake of His only Son, Jesus Christ. Listen to this. By this they are counted among the children of God and enjoy the freedom and privileges of that relationship. They inherit His name, receive the spirit of adoption, have access to the throne of grace with boldness, and are enabled to cry, Abba, Father. They are given compassion, protected, provided for, and chastened by Him as a Father. Yet they are never cast off, but are sealed for the day of redemption and inherit the promises 
as heirs of everlasting salvation. That's amazing. And this is one of the most undervalued aspects of soteriology. Soteriology just being the different aspects of salvation. But it has massive implications for the way that we live because there are so many benefits attached to the doctrine of adoption. And men and Christians throughout history, they've understood this a lot better than we do. Listen to Thomas Watson. He says, adoption is a greater mercy than Adam had in paradise. J.I. Packer in Knowing God says that our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. Of all the gifts of grace, adoption is the highest. And he says in another place, what is a Christian? The question can be answered in many ways, but the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as Father. Brothers and sisters, the progress that we make in the Christian life will closely resemble our understanding as God as Father and our understanding of us as His sons. It will be very difficult to make much progress in the Christian life without understanding that God is not your enemy. He is your Father. The foundational passage for this is Galatians 4, 4 4-7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son than an heir through God. This unlocks so much in terms of sanctification. So if it seems that you are enslaved to some sin, some deviance, some desire, you need to understand the doctrine of adoption. If you struggle with insecurity or fear, fear of rejection, fear of being cast off by people, and by, you need to understand the doctrine of adoption. If you struggle with performance-based Christianity and constantly feel like God is mad at you and will not accept you if you don't do good enough, you need to meditate and know the doctrine of adoption. And I want to just say a few last things on this in closing. When I was an infant in Christ, the first few years were very difficult for me. Very, very difficult. Because I was enslaved to so many sins. And because I, I had understood the world through a system that says success earns acceptance and approval and lack of success, failure, earns rejection and disapproval. That was the grid for which I understood the world coming to Christ. Because for years, sports and eventually basketball was my idol. Or at least it was a means to getting my true idol which was the praise and affirmation and acceptance of man and my own glory. And my whole world revolved around performing well on a silly basketball court. That's what I had deduced my identity down to so that I could gain the acceptance of my coaches and the fans and the teachers and everyone else. That was everything to me. When I performed well and I was the hero, I was on cloud nine And when I did not perform well, I was a wretched soul. 
and discouraged. And I was a horrible teammate because it didn't depend on whether my team won or lost. It just depended on how well I played or didn't play. I was a horrible teammate. And so early on, I transferred a lot of that over into my relationship with God. And I still struggle with that to this day, though it has gotten much better. Uh, but but here, here's how I would think. If my devotions are long and I'm praying well and I'm doing things well and I'm not slipping into sin, God's happy with me and I'm feeling good about myself and I'm being used of Him and I'm ready to go out and conquer the world and preach the Gospel and I would be on cloud nine. But if I slipped up in my devotions, if I slept through my alarm and didn't get up to pray, if I didn't perform well according to my own standard, and I was struggling with sin, I would feel like God was mad at me and didn't want me to come around. And so I would keep myself from Him and try to clean myself up for a while before I came to Him. And I struggled with this. And in the midst of all of this, the doctrine of adoption was absolutely huge for me. It was huge to realize that my acceptance in the eyes of God is not based upon my performance. That I could never be right with Him. Because here's the thing, my feelings of acceptance or lack thereof from God were not true. They were based upon my own emotions and my own standard and how I thought about myself. They weren't biblical. And so when I realized these things that gave me biblical permission to rest in the fact that God accepts me on the basis of another. The basis on His perfect Son and His work is the way in which God accepts me as His Son. And I am accepted in the Beloved because of His Son. And it changed everything in my life. It changed everything in my life. Because of the perfection of Jesus Christ, we no longer have to fear being rejected and condemned by God. Amen? Jesus said, or just as I said earlier, that if we could understand that Christ is always with us via the indwelling of the Spirit, that that would change everything, I think this doctrine would as well. If we could understand that God accepts us on the basis of Christ's perfect work, perfect life, and His death and His resurrection, that God accepts us as sons and receives us as sons and gives us the inheritance of a son, it would change everything. It would change the way that we view ourselves, the way that we view God, the way that we view the world. It would set us free from our sins. It would change everything. God is no longer our enemy, but our Father. These post-resurrection realities are the accomplishments of Christ's redemption. And brother and sister, if you are in Christ, they are yours. They are yours. And God the Father and God the Son give them to you as a gift in the Spirit. It's your inheritance. And we see in the rest of the New Testament that these truths radically changed the lives of the apostles and they turned the world upside down. And they are intended to radically change our lives as well. Amen? And so as you come to the table, we do this every week. 
to remind ourselves of these things, to remind ourselves that Jesus Christ died for our sins, that God raised Him from the dead, and that through our faith in Him, through our union with Him, we are fully blessed in the Beloved, and we have an eternal glory and an inheritance awaiting for us. And so if you are, if you are in Christ, if God is your Father, if you've repented of your sins unto salvation and you've been united to Him in baptism, we would ask that you come, take the supper with us. And if not, we would ask that you just remain in your seat. Uh, and in the red bulletin, there are some prayers that you can pray during this time. Take just a few moments there to yourselves. Meditate on the glory of the Lord Jesus. Confess any sin if you need to. And when you're ready, come get the elements and return to your seat. We'll take it together. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for what You've done for us in Your Son. And I pray that You would help us to know that You have not left us as orphans, but You've given us Your Spirit. And we are one with You. And we are one with Your Father. And we are one with another. God, help us. Give us the grace to see these things for what they really are. That You would get all the glory from our lives. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.